0: welcome to the tech meme right home for friday july 5th 2019 i'm brian mccullough today a superhuman maya culpa no mea culpa but apple might be ready to tacitly admit the butterfly keyboards were a mistake inside walmart's turf battles over e-commerce hq trivia lays off staff and of course the weekend long read suggestions here's what you missed today in the world of tech Let it never be said that this podcast traffics only in controversy in the scandalous headline, but never bothers to follow up and cover the apology, or at least the denouement to a previously mentioned controversy. Shortly after I added my two cents to the whole superhuman brouhaha on Wednesday, superhuman CEO Rahul Vora reacted to the controversy. Vora wrote on Medium that Superhuman will remove location tracking, will delete collected location data, is turning read statuses off on emails by default, and will build a new option to disable remote images, which allowed the sort of privacy issues people were complaining about. Quoting Vora, and note that I'm pulling from several sections of his Medium post, but maintaining the chronological order of what I'm about to quote, quote, When we built superhuman we focused only on the needs of our customers we did not consider potential bad actors i wholeheartedly apologize for not thinking through this more fully it made sense for read statuses to be on by default when our user base was early adopters they knew exactly what they were buying and were excited to buy it however over the last few days i have heard from some recent users that they felt enabled to track people by accident I am very sorry for this. Also, our goal has only ever been to create joyful, magical, and delightful experiences. We should have realized that the expectations of our software would change as our audience changed. Business tools such as Superhuman are constantly becoming more powerful. And all else being equal, the market will generally buy the most powerful tools it can. I therefore think that we, as an industry, should agree to the level of information that we track and show in our products. If one of us creates something new and that innovation becomes popular, then Market Dynamics will pull us all in that direction. This is how we ended up with location tracking inside of Superhuman, MixMax, Yesware, Streak, and many others, not to mention nearly every CRM and marketing automation platform. At Superhuman, we aspire to help people experience joy and productivity in their email. The team and I will continue to dedicate ourselves to this. In addition, I now recognize that we must deeply consider the overall ecosystem when designing software as fundamental as email. The team and I are committed to this now more than ever. We need to consider not only our customers, but also future users, the people they communicate with, and the internet at large, end quote. So look, credit where due... This is a thoughtful, reasoned, coherent, cogent response and reassessment, which is, I think, pretty much all the critics were asking for, really. Might I have a shot at buying another MacBook Pro someday in the future after all? I might, because famed Apple analyst Ming-Chi Kuo is out with a report that says that Apple might abandon the butterfly keyboard design that has been so universally criticized in favor of a new, I guess I should say new is in quotes, scissor switch keyboard, hopefully offering not only greater durability, little specks of dust will no longer screw up your keyboard, but also, and this is most crucial to me, longer key travel. So huge good news if true. Basically, they're admitting the Butterfly keyboard design was a mistake and they're going back to something like they used to have. Bad news? It might only be coming first to a MacBook Air refresh expected later this year, and might not come to MacBook Pros until they get a refresh in 2020 at the earliest." Quoting Benjamin Mayo at 9 to5 Mac: "The new scissor switch keyboard is a whole new design than anything previously seen in a MacBook, purportedly featuring glass fiber to reinforce the keys. Apple fans who have bemoaned the butterfly keyboard should be optimistic about a return to scissor switches. Quo says that Apple's butterfly design was expensive to manufacture due to low yields. The new keyboard is still expected to cost more than the average laptop keyboard, but it should be cheaper than the butterfly components. Apple has introduced four generations of butterfly keyboards in as many years, attempting to address user complaints about stuck keys, repeated key inputs, and even loud clackiness of typing when striking each keycap. It most recently debuted what it described as a third-generation butterfly keyboard with new materials in the 2019 MacBook Pro. The jury is still out as to whether that laptop suffers from the same key reliability problems, but even if the issue is resolved, the butterfly keyboard is not universally popular. A scissor switch keyboard with more travel will be greatly welcomed, end quote. Can't resist quoting some of the snark around this one. Eric Corey. Quote, now bring back the magnetic charger, the headphone jack, and the escape key. Lori Voss, quote, we're not saying you're right or that it was garbage, but we are changing our keyboards back to how they were before and calling it innovation. And great friend of the pod, Glenn Fleischman, tweeted this haiku of a one-act play. Scene, Tim Cook's office. Cook, Johnny, it's time to kill the butterfly. I've... Either it stays or I go, end quote. We haven't checked in with HQ Trivia in a while, but TechCrunch says the news is not good, saying that the company laid off about 20% of its staff this week and that downloads per month for the HQ apps are down a whopping 92% versus June of last year, according to Sensor Tower. But quoting TechCrunch, rather than solely monetizing a waning audience via in-app purchases and sponsorships, HQ Words announced it would debut a $9.99 per month subscription sometime this month that would grant access to winning, quote, bigger prizes. This could be a smart way to squeeze more dollars out of a smaller but more diehard audience. While HQ Trivia was an inspiring approach to mobile gaming, its twice-daily games didn't fit the always-on nature of mobile. It's failed to build a proper onboarding experience that gives users a taste of its games right away rather than forcing them to wait for the next scheduled match, as we suggested over a year ago. Gamers are fickle, craving instant gratification, and HQ hasn't tried to meet them in the middle. End quote. Traditional methods of electronic identity verification use a two-phase approach. The first phase asks the user to show, this is who I am, by using name, date of birth, address, phone number, and social security number. The second phase challenges the user to prove who they are by assembling questions from that person's past, often called knowledge-based authentication, KBA. KBA has been an industry standard for over a decade, unfortunately Fraud mitigation techniques become stale as fraudulent actors find ways around them. Cognito, by Blockscore, solves all this. It is the modern identity verification solution. Cognito exceeds traditional ID verification and KBA. It is much easier to verify and authenticate possession of a phone than to answer intrusive financial questions that the user often does not remember. So if you need to trust your users are who they say they are without playing 20 questions, visit CognitoHQ.com and tell them Brian sent you. That's CognitoHQ.com. The Tech Meme Right Home is sponsored by Tiny again today, and I wanted to wrap up talking about the companies Tiny likes to buy this week by talking about another possible startup case. Let's call this one the distressed startup. The, ah, our hair is on fire startup. The things are a bit of a mess startup. Maybe this is you. You've built the thing and it's taken off. You have some serious revenue, maybe five million or more, but profits remain elusive. And heck, maybe greater scale is still possible, but you're darned if you're the person that can figure out how to get things there. In short, you need someone to take this thing off your hands, someone who knows how to take it to the next level. This is something that you need to do because it's in the best interests of your company and your team. Well, again, this is where Tiny comes in. Talk to Tiny. Explain your situation. They won't need to do any deep forensics or kick the tires overly. If they can see what you see and think they know how to put out the fires and get things on an even keel, they'll make that happen. If this sounds like your situation, talk to Tiny by going to tiny.website. Again, that's tiny.website and tell them Brian sent you. Jason Del Rey in Recode has an amazing piece that you can treat as a long read if you want, or just a news item. Apparently, Walmart is projecting losses of more than $1 billion for its U.S. e-commerce division this year on revenue of between $21 and $22 billion. You may recall that a few years ago, Walmart bought online retailer Jet.com and brought in Jet founder Mark Laurie to basically supercharge Walmart's online efforts. And so far, at least from the outside, seemingly, so good. Walmart's U.S. online sales increased 40% last year alone. Walmart's share of e-commerce grew to 4.7%, up from 2.6% three years ago. Amazon, of course, now accounts for 38% of online retail, up from 32% three years ago. And Walmart's stock price has responded accordingly, up 40% last year alone. But behind the scenes... Delray paints the classic picture of a new guy coming in to shake things up at a company and the incumbent interests increasingly fighting him every step of the way. Reading between the lines, it seems like Lori might be hounded out of the company due to fierce internal politics. Bottom line, as analysts have said for years, all those huge warehouses that Amazon has spent 20 years building, the very ones that it kept reinvesting money in instead of taking profits— as all the analysts told us, they're Amazon's competitive moat. Quote, Laurie has aggressively pitched the company's management and board on the idea that Walmart needs to spend billions a year on new warehouses if it's going to seriously compete online with the Everything Store and its speedy delivery offerings, sources say. Amazon has 110 fulfillment centers in the U.S., while Walmart has 20 at most. Walmart's in-store selection is also not large enough to use stores to fulfill online general merchandise orders at a scale that could rival Amazon's product catalog. The problem is that building the online version of an everything store requires millions more products, and that means two things that Walmart's current infrastructure does not support. Dozens more e-commerce warehouses and a lot more merchants and brands selling through walmart.com. The former is mainly a cash problem, as in you need to spend a lot of cash to build a warehouse network to rival Amazon's. But Walmart has not secured the same trust and long leash from Wall Street investors that Amazon has. Amazon, on the other hand, has literally been building out its warehouse infrastructure for two whole decades, and it can offset its losses from expensive investments via high-profit businesses like Amazon Web Services and its fast-growing advertising business. Walmart has mostly rebuffed Lori's and treaties for new warehouse spending, in part because of how much deeper into the red the investments would put the e commerce business over the next few years. End quote. Time for the weekend long read suggestions. Let's start with something that I think we've touched on in the past, but if you think the cloud wars are about cloud computing and AWS and Google and IBM and Microsoft, think again, because there is another cloud war going on. Weather forecasting is a $6 billion a year market, and there has been some intense battles going on to own the future of it. Quote, For decades, private weather forecasting has been a cozy industry, dominated in the U.S. by AccuWeather, the Weather Company, founded as the Weather Channel in 1982 and bought by IBM for $2.3 billion in 2016, and DTN, which focuses on industrial concerns and was purchased by a Swiss holding company for $900 million in 2017. But now a perfect storm of macro trends, Ever cheaper processing power, cloud computing, vastly improved AI, and a proliferation of low-cost sensors has opened up the field to a fresh crop of ambitious startups. In aggregate, they have raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors who think the incumbents look vulnerable to creative new business models. They are fighting over a big and growing pie. Recent numbers are hard to come by, but a 2013 article from the Wharton School estimated that overall revenues for climate and weather companies were about $3 billion, and that, in aggregate, the industry was worth some $6 billion. A 2017 report from the National Weather Service included a prediction that the sector could quintuple in size, end quote. And a couple of deep dives applicable to certain types of developers. Ars Technica has a deep dive into Catalyst, and tries to ascertain what the future of Mac software and Apple software generally will look like because of it, and also what users can expect. And ours also interviewed a bunch of Android engineers to do a deep dive of Android Q, and what users can expect from that platform going forward. Next, think of it as inverse SEO. This has actually been going on for some time now, but BuzzFeed News looks into the industry of reputation consultants who are paid to make Negative online content, such as search results, everything from arrests to poor customer reviews, disappear. Quote, a BuzzFeed News investigation has found examples of executives, doctors, criminals, and even a Russian oligarch all benefiting from search engine manipulation campaigns to suppress negative content. As for the reputation industry, practitioners who spoke to BuzzFeed News described it as an anything-goes field, lacking clear industry standards or ethical guidelines. The irony is that the reputation industry suffers from its own perception issues. Quote, It's a pretty fly-by-night kind of industry because what does it take to be a reputational management professional? A website? Said Brandon Hopkins, the owner of reputation firms Diamond Links and After Him Media, end quote. Polygon has a feature up about Halo 2 and how it's set the template we now take for granted for how players are matched online to do battle and basically any networked gaming environment. So, cool bit of history, you think, but it's a deeper story about game design, product design, and how researchers and user experience experts can sometimes get it wrong. In short, sometimes you have to trust your guts, not your data. Quote, This is a story about a time when... I failed to be a good prophet, where my attempts to project research data into the future led to a conflict between the research team at Microsoft and the design team at Bungie. Usually, public discussions about games' user research focus on the times we were right, the times the data fixed game design. This story is one of the other times when two otherwise competent researchers drew the wrong conclusions about an innovative piece of game design and made bad recommendations and how the game succeeded in spite of that. And finally today, I'm just going to give you a rabbit hole that I went down recently. Have you ever heard of the Hayflick limit? Quote, In the 1950s, the morale of cell biologists was low. Existing research, specifically work from a French surgeon named Alexis Carroll, suggested that any cell line, including human tissue, should be able to grow in a line forever. It was somehow the biologists' fault that in vitro cell cultures kept dying, This problem didn't initially concern Leonard Hayflick, a biologist who was studying how viruses trigger cancer at the cellular level. But while working to prepare fetal tissue cell cultures for researchers at the Wistar Institute, a research center in Philadelphia, he noticed something strange. All of the samples seemed to stop dividing after they had divided 50 or 60 times. They'd live for a little while longer in culture, and then they died, no matter what. Hayflick had stumbled onto something fundamental about the majority of human cells. They're programmed to die after a certain number of replications through a process called apoptosis. Since then, researchers have found that other types of animal cells seem to have their own Hayflick limits, which may be related to their lifespans. Limits of any kind have always taunted humanity. If we could push the Hayflick limit further, could we slow down aging or even cheat death?" This is one of those pieces from Quartz that is divided into multiple segments. So don't go read the first segment and be like, gee, that was quick. Brian picked a short one to end with. Keep scrolling down because there's like a dozen segments in the whole piece with data points and graphics and a whole bunch of stuff. We're talking about the science of cheating death here, people. Don't give up too soon. That's all for this week. Quick reminder, if this weekend you're heading out to a cabin or the woods or a lake or something like that to kick back, don't forget to consider joining me out in the woods at the Fireside Conference in September. Reservations made exclusively available to Tech Meme Ride Home listeners can be yours at firesideconf.com forward slash ride. And if you are at the lake or at the beach this weekend or anytime coming up And you're looking to kick back with a good book I don't know why this has happened But I've been on a fiction binge reading jag of late That's unusual for me As I tend to only read non-fiction in history But as I told you I burned right through that first law trilogy And then last week I absolutely devoured two more books I loved first The Dog Stars by Peter Heller It's a post-apocalyptic story, but it's not as gruesome or depressing as The Walking Dead or even Cormac McCarthy's The Road, for that matter. And then just last night, I stayed up till 1 to finish Greg Hurwitz's Orphan X, the first book in his Orphan X series. This one is actually way out of my lane. It's a sort of spy, assassin, crime thriller sort of book, the type that I never read. But I did read the Bourne books when I was a kid, and of course I love those movies. Love John Wick. And Orphan X is sort of like that, basically a Jason Bourne type mixed with Batman because he's Jason Bourne, but he uses his assassin abilities to do good vigilante stuff. Look, it's not Shakespeare, but it is better than most of this type of book, and it's completely digestible in a fun junk food sort of way. It reads fast and goes down easy, so check that out if you need a mindless, breezy beach read. Check out the special two weekend bonus episodes this weekend also, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.